Well, as we're getting started, I wanted to tell you a story about a camping adventure that I had once with my family. Uh, it was my wife and her side of the family, um, which is just as good as my side of the family, but um, we were all camping, and I think it might have been in Allegheny. Uh, at any rate, um, as we had pulled into the campground, you know how you pay your four bucks or your eight bucks or whatever it is, and they hand you the map and all that stuff and tell you here's your little loop where your cabin is or your tent is. Uh, they also said to us, now you need to be aware that we, are, we have had some higher than usual bear activity in the campground lately. So make sure that you don't leave food out, um, you know, and be aware that if the bear's there, if you see the bear, just, you know, kind of leave it alone. It's going to be scavenging for food, basically. Um, so be aware of that. So we all kind of had this bear idea in the back of our mind, and sure enough, uh, as we were just finishing frying our turkey <laughs> in a huge pot of oil that had spilled over onto the ground, um, we, we uh, heard somebody yell, Bear! Bear! <laughs> and so um, before long, we saw this um, really fat bear kind of lumbering from campsite to campsite. Now, these weren't, this isn't even like tent camping. We had cabins, and you know, there's all these loops of cabins all the way around uh, outside this road. And so the bear, pretty soon, um, the, you know, you have the obligatory idiot with his, you know, 50,000 candle watt light doing laps around the, uh, the little loop there, giving everybody an update on where the bear is and what he's just had to eat. And, and uh, we see at one point, you know, across the, the road, there's the dumpster. And the lid just, we heard this big crash and the lid had opened and the, there was the bear like crawling into the dumpster, you know. And so my mother-in-law, bless her, <laughs> was uh, profoundly concerned uh, about this bear. And uh, every time the idiot with the big light would drive around and, and shout where the bear was, um, we were sitting around the campfire just kind of having fun and enjoying ourselves. My mother-in-law was listening very carefully to the updates and then shouting them across the yard to us so that we were effectively getting these updates twice. The bear has just gone near the dumpster. You should come into the cabin now. Um, but we didn't want to go in the cabin. We were having fun um, making fun of her uh, sitting around the campfire. <laughs> um, and uh, so... Uh, we, we'd been there for probably half an hour since the bear had made his, started to make his rounds. And my friend Bob said to me, Hey, guys, the bear's uh, right behind you. And I thought, I figured I'm going to turn around and see the bear, you know, kind of like off in the woods, lumbering over to the next thing. And I turned around, and the bear was, like, right there. <laughs> Big, fat, black bear. Uh, and I thought, Oh, I'm going to move now. <laughs> So Tracy and I stood up, uh, you know, quickly but not, like, in a way that would alarm the bear <laughs> and just basically walked around to the other side of the campfire for the, you know, two or three minutes it took the bear to go over and sniff the, the turkey oil on the ground and then move on to the next campsite. So that was my, uh, my wilderness bear experience. That's, that's the extent of my bear uh, experience. And, you know... When it comes down to it, this bear was not really remotely dangerous. Um, and we knew that from the start. He was basically just a fat dumpster bear. <laughs> he was a more successful version of Yogi. 
bear. Okay? And if there had been a dangerous bear, which there wasn't within, you know, 100 miles, we could have just gone into the cabin and locked our door and been perfectly safe, even from the most dangerous of bears. Um, And so, in reality, that was not exactly a true wilderness experience. Okay, you know, my wife and some, other, some others of you have had actual wilderness experiences with real wild bears, but this was not one of those times. Um, and I think, not to be too kind of pat here, <laughs> that rather reminds me of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, but, but I do think that that is the way we live our faith sometimes. As if we're kind of out in the wild, where real things, actual experiences might occur. <laughs> but really, we're just in a you know, closed $8 a night campground of faith with a little cabin to keep us safe and nothing more dangerous than a cartoonish dumpster bear. <laughs> and so, for the next several Sundays, as we walk through the time of Lent, which is the time when Christians prepare themselves for Easter... We're going to be talking about wild, reckless, untamed faith. This series is called Wild, the Reckless Pursuit of Untamed Faith. And so um, we're going to be looking at the gospel passages that the lectionary prescribes for us uh, from week to week. And today we're going to start with one from the book of Mark, first chapter. And I've asked Bethany to come and read this whole passage to us. It will be on the screen So if you'd like to follow along on the screen, you can do that. But it's also, um, you have Bibles under your chairs, and maybe you've brought one with you anyway. If you're using the red Bibles, it's on page 812. And it's chapter 1, verses 9 through 15. And and, um, even if you like looking on the screen, I'd encourage you to have the Bible for after this, after Bethany reads it, because I'm going to be basically going through this verse by verse today. And that's how we're going to sort of encounter Scripture. So... um, Open your hearts to the hearing of God's word as Bethany is going to read it. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. And the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Thank you, Bethany. And may God bless the hearing of his word. Um, Before I go on, Mike, could I ask you to turn that projector on so I can kind of follow along with what's behind me? Thanks. So, uh, as I I promised, I'm just going to kind of go through this um, verse by verse. And there's some really interesting stuff in this passage that uh, I want to talk about. And um, let's just start at the beginning with verse 9 that says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So what I'd like to show you uh, is a map of this region so that you can kind of see where, um, 
see where we're at. And this first map is of the whole Mediterranean basin, okay? So in the top left of that picture, you can see uh, the boot, which is, as you know, Italy. And then across the um, Adriatic Sea is Greece. And then the north coast of Africa goes along the bottom, right? What, did I say something wrong? Oh, please clean filter. Is that what it says? Oh, there's somebody playing with that. That one says, please clean filter. <laughs> yes. Uh, you, were you following along with me? Thank you, Pastor Mike. That's really nice of you. <laughs> so uh, if you look along the um, eastern side of that map, the, the far right, you'll see um, what I'd like to show you a little closer with the next map, which is essentially Palestine at the time of Christ. So all the stuff you read about in the New Testament, uh, or most of it anyway, happens um, on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, you can see, um, where is Nazareth there? Mike, can you point to Nazareth? Let's see how smart you are. <laughs> Here, I can do this. The, uh, in the very center of the bottom, the big tall sea, that's the Dead Sea. And you trace a little squiggly line up. That squiggly line is the Jordan River to a little smaller sea, which is the Sea of Galilee. And between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean Sea is Nazareth. That's where Jesus was from, okay? So when it says he came from Nazareth, what? <laughs> I have no idea what Mike just did behind me. But Oh, you circled that. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, note to self, tonight I will hold the pointer. <laughs> So that's where Jesus came from, from Nazareth of Galilee to the Jordan River um, to be baptized by John. Now, I tell you that for two reasons. One is because I think that kind of actually is interesting to know where this stuff takes place. But secondly, because I'm going to come back to that at the, at the end of uh, our time here. So, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. And what I'd like those of you who are Christians who have been baptized to do is think for just a minute as, I, as we go on to the next verse about your baptism. When did that happen? Where did it happen? How old were you? Uh, what were the circumstances around your confession of faith and that sort of thing? And, and then remember, uh, which is a very interesting thing to remember, that Jesus too underwent that sort of humiliating sacrament to be dunked down in water or sprinkled with it depending on where and how and all that stuff. We don't get uptight about those questions here. But. And so after the baptism, Mark says, just as he was coming up out of the water... He saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. Verse 11, And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. Now, I don't know about you, but whenever I have thought about this scene, uh, the scene of Jesus' baptism and then the Spirit descending like a dove, I always imagine this very tranquil, peaceful moment, Right? And as I was reading that passage over and over this week, I, I was struck by that phrase, the heavens were torn apart. So yes, there's a peaceful dove that comes down, but first the sky is like ripped open. And uh, because I'm a little bit of a word nerd, I, I decided I wanted to look up that word um, in Greek. Now, I'm not a Greek expert, but I was interested to find that the word that's used there is schizo. Right, where, where our word schizophrenia comes from. Um, now, our common understanding of schizophrenia is actually inaccurate to what <laughs> a psychiatrist would say schizophrenia is. But there is a sense of something being ripped apart in two. 
I was really taken aback by that. So this peaceful, tranquil, spiritual experience was maybe actually a little more violent than, than we thought, than I thought anyway. And then I thought, I wonder where else that word is used in Scripture. And I found one really, really interesting place that it was used. Do you remember the story of the crucifixion? Jesus is on the cross. And it says he, at, at, at some point he gives up his spirit. Okay, he dies. And then what happens? What happens to the veil in the temple? Schizo. It's ripped in two. Now, if you don't know, you know all about the Jewish temple system, let me give you a very quick primer. <laughs> um, the Jewish temple was where sacrifices were made. And when, people, when you go into sacrifice, you have this holy place. Okay? There's an altar, and you, know, you sacrifice a, a bull or a pigeon or a dove or uh, whatever it might be, depending on how wealthy you were. Now, beyond that, there was the most holy place. Sometimes it's referred to as the holy of holies. The most holy place was only entered once a year and then only by the priest on the Day of Atonement who would go through this veil that separated the holy temple from the most holy place and he would sprinkle blood on the Ark of the Covenant and atone for the sins of the entire community of Israel from that entire year. So this is a very sacred separation of physical spaces and who can go where and all those things are important. And when Jesus gives up the Spirit, that veil is ripped in two. How interesting that at the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry, the sky is torn open, ripped in two, and the Spirit descends on Jesus. And then at the end, almost the end, let's not forget the most important part, but at the end of his life, when he gives up the Spirit, that temple veil is ripped in two. I thought that was fascinating. So, whether you think of this as a tranquil, peaceful moment or a kind of a violent precursor of Jesus' death, either way, I can imagine for Jesus, the man, the human being, this was an incredible spiritual high. We believe Jesus is God, but we also believe he's a human being. And so I have to speculate that at age 30, something, probably about 30, this might have been the most intense spiritual experience of Jesus' human life. To have the sky ripped open and the Spirit descend on him and a voice come from heaven saying, you are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. I mean, this is like literally the movies, you know, ah, you know, like this is what Jesus is experiencing. And then what happens next? I'm going to be sitting down for this part. The very next verse, Mark says in verse 12, And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. So much for the spiritual high. That same Spirit that descended on him immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Now, when, when Mark says the word immediately, you have to take it with a slight grain of salt because he says it basically all the time. <laughs> immediately they had supper. Um, but still, it's there. And so, very soon after this intense spiritual high, 
Jesus is driven out into an intense spiritual low out in the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by Satan and accosted by wild beasts and fortunately attended by the angels. And when I read this passage uh, weeks back, we knew we were going to speak on, I knew I was going to speak on this passage today, and I gave it a, the very first reading. This is the part that stood out to me immediately, that the spirit, not the devil, not some demon, but the spirit of God had driven Jesus out into the wilderness, driven him out. It wasn't just like, okay, Jesus, you might want to be ready because... I'm going to ask you to fast for 40 days and you're going to be in the desert. It was like, no, you are my son. I'm pleased with you. Bang, you're gone. That really struck me as profound. And so again, being a word nerd, I wanted to check and see what that word was and how that might have been used. This word, um, you won't recognize it, I don't think, from any English derivative, but the word is akbalo. And here's the place that that word is overwhelmingly used in the New Testament. It's when Jesus casts out demons. That's almost the only way it's used in the New Testament. There's only a couple other instances of it being used in a different way. Jesus sees the you know, demons possessing them, a person, and he drives the demon out of them, casts them out, akbalo. And that's the same word that's used... Uh, to, to describe how the Holy Spirit sends Jesus into the wilderness. And so I want to pause for a minute and leave the scripture behind for just a second and tell you a personal story of my own. And some of you have heard this story before, uh, so I apologize if it's repetitive to you, but most of you probably haven't. This story is the story of my first ministry job, fresh out of college, um, recently, like within the last three weeks, married. My family, which at that point consisted of Tracy and me, got in a car and drove 2,600 miles southwest to the city of Las Vegas, Nevada, where I had been called, um, no, we were not seeking our fortune, <laughs> uh, where I had been called to be a pastor at a church plant. We're starting a new church there in the Valley of Las Vegas with a friend of mine that I had met during an internship that I had during college. And soon after arriving there, my friend Kevin and I went to the city of San Diego where we had to undergo a week of training for church planters. Um, it's, it's very common and, and very helpful for people who are gonna start a church to go and have an official training experience. And so we went to San Diego to, to be trained by this company, um, Dynamic Church Planting International. And during the days we had sessions uh, that were led by really experienced church planters. And then at night we always had homework. So we would go back to the hotel in San Diego where we were staying, um, grab an In-N-Out burger to go and like sit in the hotel room and do the homework for the next day's classes. And it was in that hotel room that I had what, to this day, even 10 years later now almost, is the most intense spiritual experience of my whole life. I remember distinctly, Kevin and I were working on 
the statements of uh, mission and vision and values, you know, churches like any organization need to have statements that sort of are controlling principles for their existence. And so we're working on the mission statement and our values and vision and simultaneously but separately we each kind of had this I can't describe it even it was a realization that the direction we were going was not how God wanted us to go now we didn't have any audible voice that's never happened to me but it was a very clear statement from God to me and I said this to Kevin I think that I, f I f kind of feel like God is telling us that we need to change our tack here a little bit and he said, that, I'm having that same sense too. And then we discussed the specifics of that. And we had both been kind of given this same statement. And that sounds bizarre to you. I understand that. Uh, it sounds bizarre to me. But this is what happened. We both had a very clear sense that instead of doing, um, and, and I won't get too inside baseball with church planting because it's really boring. But instead of doing um, the traditional church planting approach, which is basically raise a lot of funds, have a major marketing push through direct mail and whatever it might be, you know, build a big core group, have a huge first Sunday, um, and then have essentially a critical mass to keep going throughout your life as a church. That's what everybody does when they plant a church. And especially at that time, nobody had kind of rewritten that map at all. Um, but we, f we really felt God saying, I don't want you to do this. I want you to build your church using home groups, small groups. Which, uh, you know, again, inside baseball, who cares? But that was a really bad idea that God gave us. <laughs> that has never worked in North America. There has, I, I can't think of a single example of a significant viable church that was started using the cell group model. Existing churches can kind of build small groups onto them and that's great, but that's not how you start a church unless you're in South Korea or something. That, I mean, it's worked in Asia and, and Latin America to some extent, but it does not work in North America. But we felt we had to be obedient. So we went back the next day and told the trainers at the Church Planting uh, Institute, this is what God said we should do. And we think we have to do this. And they said, you absolutely should do that. Unfortunately, we can't help you with that. That's not how we do things, and we have no expertise in that. So you're kind of on your own. But we were excited and charged up. I mean, I was in my first ministry job, called to this amazing idea, convinced that God had changed our direction specifically so that we would succeed as a church plant, married to the love of my life, less than, less than six months. I was like at the top of the mountain, and we came back to Las Vegas from that training week just raring to go and started setting up our groups and uh, held them and, and multiplied one or two of them. And, you know, I, I won't bore you with any more details except to say that less than two years later, we sat around Kevin's dining room table and said, I think this is over. Shut it down to quote Chef Ramsay. <laughs> Let's go home. So talk about having a major spiritual high turn very quickly, Mark might say almost immediately, 
into a significant spiritual low. That was my experience. (laughs) You, no doubt, all of you, have experienced that kind of ebb and flow of spiritual happiness and satisfaction and success, right? I don't expect you to relate to my specific story because that's a really weird thing to go through. But you've all gone through your own really weird things, right? You have your own specific story. And you've had incredible experiences of faith where you felt like you were so close to God. And you've had moments of complete doubt where you felt you were in the middle of a desert. How many of you have had somebody diagnosed close to you with cancer? What about... How many of you have, have undergone and, and kind of experienced a, just an overwhelming temptation toward one sin or another? How many of you have lost a job or a family member, maybe even a child? Intense, intense pain. You know, when Jesus was in the wilderness, I observe in this passage three spiritual kind of realities, three realities of a wilderness experience, let's call them. The first one is an evil spiritual force. Now, if you know me, you know I'm not, I'm not into the... I, that, that, that doesn't describe my personal experience of faith to, to, to talk specifically about demonic possession and all, uh, some, you know, some people have had experiences with stuff like that that um, I, I can't relate to because it hasn't been true for me. However, if you believe that temptation comes from a, an evil spiritual force, I do believe that, you have experienced that, that part of the wilderness reality. So it says, you know, he was in the wilderness 40 days tempted by Satan. That's what Mark says. So there's that, that kind of malevolent spiritual force. The second thing is that he was with the wild beasts. I think that's a really interesting point for Mark to, to, to give us. Um, there are natural forces that are dangerous and unpredictable in the world. You know, tsunamis, earthquakes, bears, <laughs> uh, companies that are downsizing, cancer. You know, these are natural occurrences in, our, in a fallen world, and, and Jesus dealt with wild beasts, apparently, and we have to deal with the wild beasts of our kind of spiritual terrain as well. Unless you think it's all bad, the third wilderness reality is benevolent spiritual forces. The third thing that it says is that the angels waited on him. You know, other versions of this story in different Gospels give you more detail. If you want to look it up, you can do that. But what I take from that is that, yes, there is a spiritual force out to harm you in some way. Yes, the world has fallen and broken, and there are natural occurrences that are going to ruin your day. But yes, God does provide for you, even in the wilderness. Let me go back to that 
kind of um, jarring juxtaposition of having a hugely uh, like important, meaningful, spiritual experience, a spiritual high or a mountain, so to speak, and then almost immediately having it be swept away into this valley of spiritual death. You don't have to raise your hands, but has anybody seen that connection before in your own life where one minute seems you're up high and the next minute, man, you didn't have hardly a day to enjoy that and you were down low again. That's certainly how it happened to Jesus. And as I was reading uh, John Wesley's commentary on this passage, you guys know I love John Wesley. He says this. It's really interesting. I've got this on the screen for you. Right after the verse that says he was you know, immediately driven out, Wesley says, So in all the children of God, extraordinary manifestations of his favor are wont to be followed by extraordinary temptations. So if my experience and Jesus' experience and it sounds like John Wesley's experience are any indication, that's kind of how it goes. And that is one of the realities of a spiritual faith, a life of faith that you have to kind of be aware of, that ebb and flow. So let's go back to the text. There's two verses left, 14 and 15, that we're looking at today. Now after John was arrested... Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Now that first part, uh, the first phrase there, no, after John was arrested, that I don't think has any bearing on our story. The reason I think Mark put that in there is it kind of gives his readers a sense of when this next part happened. It's sort of like saying, oh, that was... Um, that was around the time of the O.J. trial. <laughs> you know, uh, When John was arrested and we had the trial of the century, um, Jesus came to Galilee. And here's, here's where I think we can bring this home for a little bit of a landing because if we are going to concede that the reality of life is that high times are followed by low times, we need to be able to respond to that somehow. And I think the best place to look is it how Jesus responded to it. So coming out of the wilderness, this is what happened. This is what Jesus did. I see two things. First, well, he didn't come out early. He was there for the full 40 days. And I can imagine Jesus being a human and hungry. It might have been pretty easy for him to say after, you know, 30 or 35 days, man, I have been out here in this hell for a month now. I don't know what happened back there at the river a month ago, but maybe I dreamed it. I'm going to pack it in. This is about enough of being in the desert. What if Jesus had spent 35, 36, 37 days out there and said, all right, I'm done. I'm going to go be a carpenter again. So you have to figure out, if you're in the wilderness, has it been 40 days yet? Before you decide to give up your faith, or if you're not yet a person of faith, and you feel like you're in the wilderness trying to figure out if you're ever going to become a person of faith, before you decide to give up that search, ask yourself, am I almost at the end of this? 
if this turned tomorrow, how would that affect my life, my faith? So Jesus persevered, and I think that we are called to persevere through those desert moments as well. And then, where did he go? Back to Galilee. That's why I showed you the map at the beginning. I wanted to show you where he came from because I wanted you to be more acutely aware of the fact that after his wilderness experience, that's right back where he went. You know, the cliche would be something about if you fall off the horse, you have to get right back on, right back in the saddle. Jesus had come from Galilee, had this amazing experience, had it be blown to smithereens by being driven out by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days. And what did he do when he came out of the desert? He went right back to Galilee where he started. You know, and not to compare myself to Jesus um, inappropriately, but it occurred to me as I was thinking about this that that's kind of what I did too after my desert experience. I came back to Rochester. Now, I should be... um, I should disclose fully that when I came back to Rochester, I was most certainly not going to be a pastor anymore. (laughs) And no way in the hell that was the desert of Las Vegas was I going to plant another church. Um, And so I don't know why I'm here, (laughs) but somehow just the act of going back and, and trying to get back into my own life of faith, I ended up in this place doing what I think God has called me to do, even though some days it doesn't feel like I'm very well equipped for it. The people of God have always done this kind of thing. St. Patrick's Day is coming up, and you may know the story of St. Patrick, how he was ripped away from his home, and then like, went and ministered to the very people who were kind of barbaric to him before. You may, if, you were, if you were here last week, you remember Anna telling the story of how she was, a, you know, she was not a person of faith. She did not believe. And then when she came to faith, now that she is, she is a believer, she wants to spend all her time with people who are not believers because she understands them best. So Jesus went back to Galilee. I came back to Rochester. Patrick went back to Ireland. Anna went back to the people who don't believe. Where is your Galilee? if you are in the wilderness now. Maybe you're still in Galilee and haven't had the kind of baptism experience yet. That's okay. We like having you around. Um, But maybe you have and you've been in the wilderness and you're looking for a way to get out. I might suggest you think about where your Galilee is and head back that way. And what does Jesus do when he gets there? He proclaims the good news. That's really challenging to think about. That if you are in the desert of your faith, that the step you might need to take to get out of it is to go back where you started and proclaim the good news that you maybe are not even sure is all that good, in fact. What a crazy idea. A few minutes ago, I mentioned that that Greek word, akbalo, is almost exclusively used to describe the casting out of demons. And I told you that it was used to describe Jesus being driven out into the wilderness. There's one other place in the New Testament that it's used. 
And you may remember this verse about um, Jesus saying that the, the harvest is ripe and God is sending laborers into the fields for the harvest. Basically talking, we think about evangelism and spreading the good news. That's the same word. God is akbalo, driving people out into the fields for the harvest. And so that kind of comes full circle. I realize that's a challenging thing to think about. And uh, maybe it's of some comfort to you to know that it's really challenging for me as well when I have had moments of doubt or hours of doubt <laughs> or months of doubt to think about the idea that now I need to go proclaim this good news that today doesn't feel all that good. But I can tell you, at least in my experience, that when I have done that, that I have, that's been what's pulled me out of the, the wilderness. So all I can do is offer that as a suggestion for you. Nobody's experience is true for everyone. But if you're in the wilderness, persevere, go back to Galilee, and proclaim the good news. And in the meantime, think about the fact that the angels attended to Jesus' need. Or maybe they brought him some food. <laughs> and I believe that God provides, in the sacrament of Holy Communion, a spiritual food for us. That even when we're in the wilderness, the angels attend to us each time we come to this table to celebrate it together. Remembering the sacrifice of Jesus, remembering the resurrection, remembering the most important base of our faith and taking in this spiritual food. And so every week after we've heard from the word of God, we respond to that word around his table. And this table will be open for the rest of our time together. And if you, especially if you are in the wilderness right now, I would like you to come to this table, take a piece of that bread and dip it in the wine or juice, and remember his sacrifice. But also remember that he too was in the wilderness. And that the angels attended to his needs and that God is attending to your needs even those needs that are very specific to your wilderness experience. Let me pray for you and for me, and the table will be open. Lord Jesus, it gives us um, really great comfort to know that you were driven out into the wilderness and had a desert experience just like the ones that we have and in some ways worse please help us to remember that even though there are spiritual forces working against us and even though there are natural forces that that make life hard and and unbearable sometimes that you are present with us that god cares for us and attends to our needs and we ask that you would give us the courage to persevere during those wilderness moments out in the wild 
And then when the time is right, to go back to our own personal Galilee and proclaim the good news as best we can as broken people. And while we come to this table together to remember and celebrate your death and resurrection, Jesus, be among us. Strengthen our souls for the work that we have to do. We pray all this in the name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, now and forever. Amen.